Home ownership. It's a big part of what we're about as Americans. It's one of the staples of the American dream. That's because home ownership is a major way we build and retain wealth. It's a really important rung in the ladder that allows people to move up. It plays a big part in who wins and loses in our economy. Buying a house is already complicated and high risk, but there's a gap in how it works for some Americans and how it works for others. If you're black, it's even more complicated and more risky. All kinds of things are rigged against you. We wanted to look at how this works, to look at this gap in detail. And so this half hour, we're bringing you the story of one American family. It's a picture that spans generations, and it comes from one of our reporters here at WBEZ Chicago, Natalie Moore. It's her own family's story. Here's Natalie. My parents, Joe and Yvonne Moore, married in 1974. My dad worked for Shell Oil Company. He was part of the post-civil rights wave of African-Americans hired by corporate America. My mother was a special education teacher and administrator in Chicago public schools. Their first home decision was a cultural choice and a practical one. They wanted to live in an African-American community, put down roots, and start a family. What I remember is uh, trying to decide where we would want to live. And we didn't think of anything outside of Chicago. And Chatham was just really the neighborhood of of choice. It was like the black, you know, neighborhood, very stable, middle-class neighborhood, nice homes and manicured lawns. And, you know, professional blacks lived there. And, you know, working people lived there, too. But it was, at the time, it was really the neighborhood that a lot of blacks wanted to move into. Chatham was a, was, was a neighborhood of excellence. That block was just a block of excellence. What do you mean by excellence? Well, we had a block club. We formed a block club. We got to know one another, made sure that everybody knew who was, a, who was your next door neighbor across the street, things of that nature. Like it is everywhere, in Chicago, home ownership is the path to the middle class in this country, the way Americans build wealth. But in Chicago, just like it is in a lot of places, race shapes the decision of what house to buy and where to buy it, changes the way the whole system works for African Americans. By the time my parents bought a house, they weren't confined to the former black belt on the south side. They did buy in a neighborhood that had experienced white flight two decades earlier. Chicago's Chatham neighborhood. The home my parents chose was a brick Cape Cod on quiet, leafy South Michigan Avenue. They bought it for $30,000, an average price for Chatham back then. Though a family story has it that the owner, an elderly widow, found my father charming. The house had four bedrooms in a typical South Side wood panel basement, prone to flooding when it rained. I have good memories of that basement. An old 8-track and record players were next to shelves stacked with my parents' records. Thank you very much if you applauded for me. From Red Fox Comedy. If you didn't applaud, I hope your dog dies. To the Ohio Players. To Malcolm X. Since this is the year of the ballot or the bullet, I would like to clarify some things that refer to me personally. The place where I grew up was more than a house or a neighborhood. 1980s Chatham forged my first view of the world and shaped my identity. 
my neighbors were all African-American. Growing up, we jumped double dutch rope. We rode 10-speed bikes. We ran through lawn sprinklers in our swimsuits and backyards while our parents barbecued. We walked the tracks and swung on swings at Nat King Cole Park. Each spring, I counted on Mrs. Lee to order a box of thin mitts to support my Girl Scout troop. Mr. Henderson's family owned a popular shoe store. Mr. Montgomery retired from the Chicago Police Department. I wasn't thinking about race or class as a child. It would be years before I realized that I grew up in a kind of cozy racial cocoon of black middle-class vibrance. But even at a young age, at some level I knew Chicago's blacks, whites, and Latinos and Asians generally didn't live together. I certainly never saw any of them in Chatham. Growing up in segregation was like air and water, a constant, but something I never really thought about until I was a teenager. In the way that segregation is an everyday reality in Chicago, the way I opened my eyes to it was everyday too. It was a hot summer day in 1991. My friends Donna, Brandy, Aisha, and I were heading home from Chicago's Loop. We'd been shopping. We got on the L train and headed back to the South Side to get dressed for the Johnny Gill concert at the new Regal Theater on 79th Street. It's easy to see Chicago segregation on the city's red line L train, which runs north to south. Watch who boards and exits the L. Back then, white people emptied off by downtown. On this day, as my friends and I bumped along, the white folks stayed and packed the train shoulder to shoulder, past downtown. Stayed on as the train passed into the city's mostly black south side. To 14-year-old me, it was baffling. No way this throng of white Chicagoans lived off of my L line. I was disoriented. Then... At 35th Street, all of the white riders unloaded out the train. The stop for Comiskey Park, the White Sox baseball stadium. They were baseball fans. Mystery solved. My little world pieced back together. Doors closing. At the time, I didn't know this, but my neighborhood, like others on the South Side, like others around the country, was black on purpose. Before 1948, Chatham had been all white and deliberately kept blacks out, an example of the discrimination that met migrants from the South. Blacks started moving in after the U.S. Supreme Court struck down racially restrictive covenants that year. Whites promptly fled Chatham and Southside neighborhoods like it. Those places then became miles upon miles of Black neighborhoods with high rates of home ownership. The communities brimmed with racial pride, but often suffered from a lack of resources. My dad was a Vietnam veteran. He had his own version of middle-class militancy. He often said this when we were growing up. It's nation time. Time for all black folks to stand up and be counted. That anthem was just one way he drilled into us not to shop at small businesses in Chatham if they weren't owned by blacks. Honestly, it wasn't that hard. We had black dry cleaners, hair salons, barbecue joints, barbershops, and soul food restaurants. The black-owned bought when ice cream had a shop near our house. Black-owned banks thrived in the neighborhood. 
if I went shopping and I would go out, like clothing shopping, go out the neighborhood. But I don't know, I managed to spend money in the neighborhood. We did. We, we supported, there were two black grocery stores in the community as well. One at 87th oh, yeah. and, mm-hmm. and uh, King Drive and one at 79th and King Drive. And we, we supported those stores. There were restaurants like Army and Lou's and Isola's. I mean, I would take the family, we would have on Sundays and go have dinner there on 79th Street. And uh, that's where we used to see the mayor. He would be in there on Sunday afternoons here in Washington uh, with his bodyguard eating dinner. So, middle class, lots of businesses, but Chatham was no urban Mayberry. When I was in high school, the Chatham rapists stalked the neighborhood. On more than one occasion, thieves broke into our garage. None of this was lost on my parents. There was crime in the neighborhood, although it was a very nice neighborhood. But, you know, you would hear about robberies. There's a black tax that goes along with Well, the black Mm -hmm. tax is more crime. Goods and services cost more. The cleaners cost more. The gasoline prices were higher in some instances. Grocery stores. I can remember going shopping at the uh, jewel store at the Grand Bazaar on 87th and Dan Ryan. And when I wanted to pay for the groceries by check, I had to almost get my birth certificate for ID. I stopped going there. On the way home, I would stop at the jewel at 95th and Pulaski. I never even had to show my driver's license to cash a check there. And the prices were different. And I asked them, why are the prices so different? And part of the answer was because of the security that they had to have at that particular store. There is a, a shortcoming of living in, in an all-black neighborhood, even one as affluent as Chatham. Did you think about your Chatham life in comparison to white Chicago life ever? Not really. I didn't think that anybody was living any better than I was or I was living worse than someone else. But you do talk about the black tax. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Did that make you angry? Yeah, it did. did make me angry. The black tax also means black middle class neighborhoods are more affected by urban ills than middle class white neighborhoods. Meaning if it's a black neighborhood, you likely have to deal with more poverty, more crime, worse schools and fewer services. The inequalities of the housing market ripple out into other parts of life. For all the work and money it takes to get into a middle class neighborhood, you get less for it. Scholars call this the two faces of the black middle class communities, the privilege and the peril. When it comes to housing, jobs, education and salary, the black middle class equates to white lower middle class in America. Many white Chicagoans have no idea that a place such as Chatham exists and couldn't pinpoint it on a map. And this everyday black middle class life is pretty much invisible in America. People going to work, sending their children to school, living their lives, minding their business. Even with our racial pride and identity, my parents did want their three children to experience diversity and understand the city and the world far beyond the limits of Chatham. That's partly where their decisions about education came in. I didn't attend my neighborhood public schools. My parents recall there was no all-day kindergarten, a must-have for two working parents. Plus, they wanted me to function in the larger society, not just a black cocoon. We were able to bus you from our community 
to a community that was more diverse. So the student population was not just all black. It was, in this particular case, it was black and white. And it was about 50-50, if I remember correctly, when you started off. We wanted you to have that experience and uh, with knowing people of different cultures. And those people respecting your culture and you respecting their culture. And the learning environment was very important as well. Sometimes the books and some of the learning aids and what have you are a little bit more abundant in other communities than in some communities. In 1981, I was five years old, about to start elementary school. Chicago Public Schools operated under a desegregation consent decree. My parents heard about a new magnet-style program at Sutherland Elementary. It's in Chicago's Southside Beverly neighborhood, one known for its relative integration. My friends, they didn't send their kids to the neighborhood school, and it was just thought that these programs were stronger than the uh, local school had. Beverly was a fledgling integrated neighborhood back then and wanted to head off white flight. In the 1970s, white residents saw that integration was inevitable and deliberately tried to maintain a racial balance for stability. It was a dramatically different approach for a white neighborhood to embrace integration. I loved Sutherland. I didn't know I was part of a social experiment until much later when I was in college. The teachers treated us equally. We adored the principal. My sixth-grade teacher, Ms. Trebat, gave me one of the books that changed my life, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Each classroom and grade had a number of Black students. There were enough of us that we didn't feel like flies and buttermilk. Later, my younger brother and sister, Joey and Megan, joined me. Did you worry that we might have problems, you know, being Black outsiders going to a white school in a white neighborhood? Because at that point, Beverly was still more white and all the black kids were pretty much bust. Well, there were more blacks moving in all the time. But I'm thinking like but 1981. No, like, but no, I did. I, I, if I remember correctly, that was not a big issue or concern. That no, I, it really uh, wasn't. It and really, I didn't think about it. You know, you never seemed to have a problem. Was it a problem? No. The only re- thing I remember someone saying to me, something like, oh, you went to Disney World? I didn't think blacks could afford to go to Disney World. Oh, I don't remember that. <laughs> Megan said that none of her white friends would spend the night, that that was an issue. And I thought I had some who did. And any white girls I don't think ever so. spend the night? No, no, I don't think so. I don't remember that. I think your pajama parties were just usually your friends in the in the neighborhood. I don't, I really don't remember. And they would come over for Megan's, but they never spent the night. The next big development in my family's house was when they sold it. I was in my junior year at Howard University when my parents called. When I came home for Thanksgiving, it would be to a new house, just like that. I had a flair for the dramatic and was very weepy about them leaving my childhood home, my childhood neighborhood. I never got to say goodbye. At the time, I selfishly didn't think about my parents' financial decision. I felt betrayed. They were elated. Hush not, child, and don't cry. I'm so glad that we got out. Well, we got a value for our buck. We got a good buck for the house. And uh, I'm glad we did leave. I'm sorry that we didn't leave earlier. I'm sorry that we had to leave to begin with. Financially, I mean, you all couldn't have seen the 
foreclosure crisis coming, but the house might have been a few years ago worth $30,000 given what happened to the housing crash. So Mm -hmm. you all, I don't know if you thought about it as a financial decision, but financially you're so much better off living in an integrated neighborhood. Oh, absolutely. I knew that. That's, oh yeah, absolutely. Oh yeah. Just move on toward your destination. My parents made a good decision, but they also got lucky. They bought the Chatham home in 1974 for 30000 and sold it almost 20 years later for more than four times that amount. They avoided the rocky times Chatham was starting to go through, population loss, decreased median income, and plummeting home values. And they avoided the housing collapse that hit Black neighborhoods like Chatham hard. Black homeowners were set up by certain lending practices to take a harder hit than whites, meaning subprime loans were targeted at Black homeowners, and those loans were concentrated in Black neighborhoods. The house my parents bought in the Beverly Morgan Park area is a four-bedroom mid-century modern split level. The neighborhood wasn't devastated by the housing crash like Chatham. The home has a patio and large yard and a housing market with stable home values, it's the place my big family gathers for barbecues and parties. Yeah, just took the beans out the oven. Yeah, you go ahead and make your plate. But I'll admit that sometimes I, I miss our neighborhood as far as it was such a convenient location. I miss my neighbors. And why was it better for you financially? When we lived in Chatham, the house would not have increased in value like it has for now. And I guess you start looking at that as you get older Beverly is 62% white, 34% black. My parents' decision to move to an integrated neighborhood has paid off financially. Research shows wealth building through home ownership generally benefits whites more than blacks. But blacks can also benefit from stable housing values in integrated areas. My parents did. I didn't know these things when it was my turn to buy. And I sure wasn't thinking about generational wealth building. I just had this random goal to buy by age 30. It seemed like the right thing to do because everyone in my family had bought properties, including both sets of grandparents. I was mimicking their behavior. When that time came at age 32, I merely thought about what I could afford. My dream neighborhood, the trendy South Loop, was out of my financial reach. So I happily chose a black Southside neighborhood, Bronzeville, the neighborhood that was home to waves of blacks from the Great Migration. I bought in May 2008, right before the housing collapse. Bronzeville was considered the next big thing for Black professionals looking for roots. The neighborhood had been called the low end, then rechristened Bronzeville. Grand Boulevards, close to the lake, close to the expressway, comely Greystones. I loved the idea of investing into a historical legacy with the chance to usher in change. I represented a wave of young Black homeowners buying into that same idealism. Then, reality set in. Too many empty lots, not enough economic development, crime, the housing crash, retail redlining, the realization that black doesn't trump green, all dashed my hopes. I paid $172,000 for my three-bedroom, two-bathroom unit in a red brick three-story walk-up. I loved it. I remember the first time standing in my own place, admiring the fireplace, stainless steel, the paint colors I picked out. My friend and real estate agent, Esther Williams, helped me get the condo. 
and also helped me try to sell it. She lives and works in Bronzeville. Even though Chicago has seen a glut of condos, she says there are unique forces at play in Black neighborhoods when it comes to home ownership. And there's one that's not talked about a lot. Fighting appraisals. It definitely takes someone with experience, and a lot of times these banks are sending in appraisers, again, that are not from the area, and they're just looking at just the numbers and not the dynamics. I can attest to bad appraisals. Here's what happened. In 2013, I wanted to lower my monthly payment, so I refinanced. My condo was appraised at $55,000. I was floored. Remember, I bought for $172,000, and suddenly, my major investment had plummeted in value, at least according to this appraiser. And don't forget, values tend to be lower in majority Black neighborhoods, regardless of amenities. Then, in summer 2014, I decided to move out because my boyfriend and I planned to get married, and neither of our places was big enough to accommodate us and his three daughters. But because my condo had been appraised at so much less than what I paid and what I still owed, I was underwater. I couldn't sell without taking a huge loss. Sometimes a bank will agree to take less than what's owed on the mortgage through what's known as a short sale. So I found a buyer. Oh, you had it like this. How did you have it now? So I had, did you see the pictures? But the bank didn't accept the short sale. In fact, another appraisal came in at even less, 45000 And such low appraisals mean that I would always be underwater. If my appraisals hadn't been so low, I might have had a chance. But instead, I had to pay thousands of dollars to leave the condo behind. This was an agreement with the lender to avoid foreclosure. There are plenty of people happy with their home purchases in Bronzeville. But I'm not the only one who felt like the decision haunted me. My friend Jessica moved to Bronzeville and also ended up moving out. I sat down with her a while ago to try to make sense of the mess we found ourselves in. Besides mm-hmm. the, the, some of the obvious things about the housing downturn, mm-hmm. do you feel like you made a mistake? I mean, I feel mm-hmm. like I committed class suicide. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but When you say class suicide, what do you mean? Um, I feel like I'm worse off than my parents. Mm-hmm. Wow. Because of that investment. Yeah. You put your money in your house. And yeah, as do like most black families. That's where our yeah. you know, wealth is living. And I think only time will tell like where things went wrong. But I do feel like it's a part of you know, the bigger picture of you know, historical issues that Chicago has faced for a long time. Like I, I, I feel like I, I was buying in there with hope for the future, but I think what happened there was dictated by the past and by institutionalized, you know, power structure that continues to play out. When I moved in 2014, it was to Hyde Park on the south side. I thought, let me give this integrated neighborhood a whirl. We're renting. We're surrounded by shops and restaurants and other amenities. That same year, my husband and I married in our new living room, and I gained three stepdaughters. Since then, I've had a baby girl. I still sometimes think about my parents' success, about their good luck, and I compare what a terrible experience I had and my bad luck. I try to make sense of it. I felt ashamed of it. I actually never told them about it, never told them exactly how it worked out or that I felt bad, like I made a mistake. Recently, for this story, I sat down with them to talk about it. 
What were you all's thoughts when I was buying my condo in Bronzeville? And you can be honest. Well, I was concerned about investing in that area of the city, particularly since years ago, that part of the city was always known as being the red light district. And uh, in addition to the red light, there's crime, a heavy onslaught of drugs on the 47th Street area. So <clears throat> for those are the reasons I was concerned whether or not the money invested, the return would be there in a neighborhood that had that past reputation. Even though it was a changing neighborhood? I didn't see it changing as fast as some people. And turned out it hasn't changed. The change has not been there. Why do you think that I chose to, to buy there? Well, it, the developer had a good piece of property, and he developed it into a nice condo. It was close to public transportation. I did think the price was higher than it should be for that area. What did you think I, it should have gone for? Well, I don't remember what the price was at the time. 172 Yeah, at, at the most, you know, somewhere around 140 130 140 well, I bought in a black neighborhood like you all did. No, no, Chatham. Chatham didn't have that reputation that 47th and uh, 48th and Prairie had. No, it was a bedroom community, Chatham was, with individual homes, some apartment buildings, but mostly single-family homes in that area. I don't know a cautionary tale or what it was, but it did make me feel like a middle-class loser for that investment and the way things happened. And so what do you think about me moving to Integrated Hyde Park and what I should do next? Well, I like Hyde Park. That's a very diverse community. And they have diversity in terms of their, their living, their homes, the buildings, the living properties and things like that. Well, I agree with uh, what your father said. Hyde Park is, a, I think, a very good neighborhood Especially on the south side, it has, you know, a lot of things going for it, restaurants, stores, and then the University of uh, Chicago there. I do like your block because I can find a place to park. Mm -hmm. And your apartment is, is really nice. It's larger than a lot of houses with the square footage. You know, it's nice for the, uh, the girls. They can walk to the store and do some things to get that city life. What was your second part of that question? What do you do next? Yeah. In terms of living? Yeah, and home buying. Yeah, well, I think down the road, if you can find a place that meets the budget and meets your expectation, you know, what you're looking for, if that opportunity comes, I, I think that uh, you ought to definitely consider it. Where? Oh. Well, there's always close to your father and I. The Beverly Morgan Park area, which is, uh, I think, nice. No, I won't be moving closer to my parents. And after looking at my family's experience, I'm more conflicted about home ownership than ever before. Buying a condo didn't help me climb the ladder or establish a foundation for wealth. I lost money. Honestly, I feel jaded. It's true, I ran right into the housing collapse, but I also ran right into a system that is stacked against African Americans. 
I haven't given up on an idea of buying a home or living in a black neighborhood like the one I grew up in. I like the idea of putting down roots. But if I buy a house in a black neighborhood, I know the challenges I'll be up against, like a racial gap in housing values, like a lack of amenities, like the black tax, unless the American dream of home ownership changes and becomes more equitable for everyone. Natalie Moore is author of The South Side, a portrait of Chicago and American segregation. Some material from this piece was adapted from the book. You can find photos and much more at WBEZ.org. This documentary was edited by Kate Cahan and produced by Joe Dassault. The executive producer is Ben Calhoun.